Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is George Washington University Assistant Professor David Karp, who recently authored The Move-On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of Political Advocacy. He's here to give a talk co-sponsored by both the Ash Center and the Shorenstein Center. Dave, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You've written that political advocacy has undergone a massive fundamental shift, especially because of the internet. Mm -hmm. What was political advocacy before and what has it become? Sure, well, to be clear, there's actually a lot that hasn't changed and there's a few important things that have. Usually when we look at political advocacy online today, we focus on the individual acts that are taken on e-petitions or through Facebook. And we focus on this conversation about clicktivism. Um, and that's really missing the space where the change is going on. The space, the, the change is happening through the different organizations that are now forming. So political advocacy, at least dating back to the late 1960s, early 1970s, has traditionally been organized through large-scale, single-issue organizations that are mostly uh, focused in Washington, D.C. lobbying. Um, before writing the book, I actually spent over a decade working as a volunteer with the Sierra Club, which is the oldest and largest environmental group in the country. And they're based on that model. They represent environmental issues. They find members, mostly through the mail, who will give them an annual check. And then they use those donations in order to fund their advocacy. And what we're seeing with the internet is now organizations have redefined membership. So if you take the example of moveon.org, anyone who's on MoveOn's email list is considered a MoveOn member. They no longer require those annual donations. Uh, and instead, they're raising money on an action-by-action action basis. So they're asking people to focus in on the issue that is in the news today and giving them an opportunity to, uh, giving them an outlet for their passion. Um, that raises different funds for different issues. Uh, they organize the, or they uh, structure the organization in different ways. And so we structure power differently than we did before. The work of political advocacy day to day is actually very similar than it w to what it was in the 1980s and 1990s. Organizations are still trying to educate the public, trying to mobilize a public, their public, uh, and trying to influence policymakers. But the tools that they use to do that have shifted. The real power, the real difference, though, is in this new generation of organizations and what's happening to the old generation as this new one comes to power. So the groups that have uh, emerged as online active, where online activity is happening, mm -hmm. uh, the ones that you've pointed out, Move On, uh, Daily Coast, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what they're able to do is, for instance, raise money. Mm -hmm. um, but what about the communications aspect of, of things? Is in some way all of the organizations using these these uh, these groups are they just kind of preaching to the choir or are they actually being able to spread their message through the general populace through these uh, uh, av advocacy groups? Uh, it's interesting. I would say that there's a balance of choir preaching and public education. Um, the question is whether that balance is any different than it used to be. So again, if we take uh, National Abortion Rights Action League as another classic organization or Greenpeace or a Sierra Club, uh, they've always wanted to educate the broad public but most of their communications end up being aimed at the segment of the public that is interested in engaging with them. This is an issue public, so it's the reason why I describe them as a public. Um, what we see with these new organizations is that they are still mostly reaching out to a public. Uh, MoveOn would certainly like to have the entire nation retweeting their messages or reading their emails, 
Um, but the people who respond are generally the ones who want to respond, the ones who are receptive. Uh, and so what they're doing is galvanizing a small subset of the American populace to take broader political action. Um, that's pretty much always been the way that it's been. When I got involved in the environmental movement in 1995, 1996, we were working on uh, the Environmental Bill of Rights, which was a big petition campaign uh, trying to fight against uh, the contract, uh, contract with America. And we got a million petition signatures nationwide. That was, what, about a half of a percentage of the entire country that took that one action with the environmental movement. Uh, now what we see is much more actions, though still in terms of the total segment of the public, we're talking in the single-digit single, single digit millions who engage in any of these act activities. Most of the American public, outside of election time, simply isn't paying a lot of attention to politics. And even though the internet has made it easier for people to go and engage with information and gather information, if people didn't want to gather information about politics, they'll gather information about funny cat videos instead. So another uh, element of the that, you, that you've pointed out is that uh, uh, this seems to be happening on for liberal causes mm -hmm. uh, and not so much for conservative causes. Is that because uh, you know the conservative base or the organizers and the conservative wing haven't haven't used the tools yet, or is it be or is there something different about advocating for conservative causes? Right. So it, it's. A fascinating puzzle. I spend chapter six of this book on this puzzle. Uh, I'm eventually going to be spending an entire book trying to get this puzzle right. Um, but my theory is that it's not that conservatives can't use the internet or are culturally opposed to the horizontality of the internet, which is something that some other authors have suggested. Um, and the reason why I reject that is because if you look back at the internet of, say, 1996, 1997, the really big political sites were places like the Drudge Report and Free Republic. Uh, Free Republic is a, an online message board for uh, hardline conservative activists that's still active today. Uh, so we saw an awful lot of conservative online successes right up until around the time of the Iraq War. And that's when we saw the blossoming of the liberal blogosphere and also the real growth of groups like MoveOn that was founded in 1998 but didn't really get big until the Iraq War. Um, so the theory that I propose in the book is called Outparty Innovation Incentives. And the idea there is essentially new technologies, not just the internet, but also if we look back to past communications technologies. If we look at talk radio, for instance, talk radio existed prior to uh, the Clinton administration, but really Rush Limbaugh built his broad audience once he had Clinton to rail against. Uh, so there's this notion in the social movement literature of counter-mobilization. What I would suggest is that being in a space of counter-mobilization where the other side is in charge of politics and therefore, you can provide the simple message to your public of we need to stop what the other side is doing. And that can be the Iraq war or that can be health care. Um, when you're in that moment of counter-mobilization, you have a more ripe opportunity structure for building new organizations and experimenting with new technologies. So it's not that conservatives haven't tried to build their own move on. They, in fact, have. But whereas move on was able to build throughout the Bush years and had ample opportunities there, uh, conservatives, we saw during the Obama years that they got the Tea Party started, but that adapted to the newest online technologies of the day. So the Tea Party's great at Twitter, but it's not as good at uh, implementing the types of things that MoveOn does. So Obama's just not as good enough of a foil? Or? Well, Obama's been a great foil for them, but he's been a great foil for counter-mobilizing with the latest set of online innovations. One thing we need to keep in mind is that the Internet itself keeps on evolving. Uh, the Internet of 2008, we were talking about the 2008 campaign and all the things that uh, Obama did with YouTube. In 2004, John Kerry did nothing with YouTube. Do you know why that is? 
because YouTube wasn't started until 2005. There you go. The internet keeps changing at this fast, fast rate. And so what that means is when you're in a moment of counter-mobilization, your real advantage lies in the latest technologies that have just become apparent. Um, now again, as I said, this is something which is in chapter six of the book. I eventually, I'll, I'll come back 10 years from now and I'll tell you the full story of how this relates through history, because that's a big project that I'm going to be taking on eventually. Um, but we're really just scratching the surface here of how technology gets applied in, polit in political campaigns uh, during these moments of counter-mobilization. So you mentioned earlier on this idea of clicktivism or, or slacktivism that uh, a number of people can do things like like an image or retweet a post uh, and not necessarily actually make change. There was a lot of talk over uh, a year or two ago about Coney 2012. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a piece in The New Yorker talking about how uh, you know civil rights wasn't accomplished because people were saying they agreed with it. It was mm -hmm. because people stood up and burned and actually acted on their beliefs. Uh, where does that connect? Where is is you know clicktivism? Is that is that a legitimate concept, or is there is there some reason why that has value beyond? Yeah, um, I think honestly, clicktivism is a bit of a cop out of a concept. Um, the the problem with Gladwell's argument, Gladwell is right in his reading of the social movement literature that serious social movements require strong ties. But he's wrong to then look at the internet and say the internet is only good for weak ties. The internet is also tremendously useful for uh, building and maintaining strong ties. When I talk to the current student leaders of the Sierra Club, what they talk about as being the most valuable technology is, is Google Documents. Because they now on their conference calls can be looking at the same document and editing at the same time. And they'll ask me, an old alum, how did you ever manage without this? You know, that's strong time mobilization that's helping them to plan 10,000 person conferences in Washington, D.C., real social movement activity, also using technology, just not the technology you happen to be looking at. Um, to take a, a deeper look at that, uh, just last week we saw an example of what most people would call clicktivism, which was on Facebook, so many people turning their profile page to a red equals sign that was sponsored by the Human Rights Campaign and that was focusing on the Supreme Court's discussion of gay marriage. Um, and I once again heard waves of critique saying this is just clicktivism, you should engage in real activism. And the thing that I wanted to shout back at everyone is, you know, if you've ever been to a rally, the first thing that happens when you show up at an in-person rally is somebody gives you a sticker or a button. Mm -hmm. These are the same techniques in the same way e-petitions are pretty much just as light as the old physical petitions that we used. Mm -hmm. And they're just a tactic. Now, petitions, be they e-petitions or old petitions, can be well used or poorly used, depending on how they fit into a broader campaign for power and influence. Um, if all you're doing ever is changing your profile page, you probably shouldn't expect that to change the world. But if changing your profile page, A, signals to other people that this is an issue that you care about and that there's solidarity there, that can make it more likely they'll take other actions. And if that allows other organizers to then identify people who agree with them, contact them and invite them to take other actions, that's campaigning. Uh, if it makes it easier for them to do that, then the internet is facilitating bigger and better campaigns than we had before. Is so, there some mm -hmm. risk that people who kind of get used to this idea that they can just change their profile mm -hmm. avatar, their profile pic, um, and feel like they're making a difference, is there some risk that you know they kind of become uh, uh, less active in other ways by you know, thinking that that is really the way to make change? There's a risk, there's just not a very big one. And again, the reason, if we look back to the 1970s when we started getting these single issue advocacy groups, mm -hmm. the name that we threw around then instead of clicktivism was armchair activism. 
And there's the real concern that citizens, rather than engaging in, poli- in direct politics and in being active citizens, that instead they would you know, just sign a check or write a letter. Um, that, that was the threat. There were certainly citizens who decided I've done my part because I wrote a $20 check to Sierra Club, and now those people can go worry about the environment for me. Um, but the job of these political organizations was to get people out of their ap- apathy, out of their funk, and do better work. Um, that's always been hard, and it continues to be hard. So if the, cri- the collectivism critique is, well, people might stay lazy because they're taking these little actions, then, well, yeah, the, the job of organizers, though, is to get them not to be lazy. And these new organizations are pretty good at using that data in order to encourage bigger and better action. The work is still hard, but it's always been hard. And the critiques that we apply to collectivism today are exactly the same as we were applying to mail 30 years ago. So political campaigns have been trying to use the latest and greatest internet phenomenons, you know, like you said, YouTube, Twitter, mm-hmm. as as they come, Vine now, mm-hmm. um, are so far they've had uh, a tremendous success in raising money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president is a per- perfect example, yep. number one example of that. But in other areas, uh, they haven't necessarily made a huge uh, uh, leap in mm-hmm. terms of communicating with the public. The, you know, the, the money in political campaigns still goes towards TV ads that right. don't go towards, you know, social media budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where is the, the, how does that gap get crossed? Where, when is it, when is the next big step in, uh, in Netroots advocacy? And how does it bring political campaigns uh, to, you know, the next place? So I would say that the next big step, uh, and three years from now I will likely be wrong because the internet is very good at surprising us with whatever the new technology is. But the next big step that I at least see right now uh, is analytics. Um, and analytics can be used, that's analyzing data and using it to make better decisions. Um, and there's basically two main classes of analytics. The first is analytics for tactical optimization. A journalist named Sasha Eisenberg has written a great book called The Victory Lab, just came out a few months ago, that discusses how political campaigns, particularly the Obama campaign uh, and an organization called the Analyst Institute, are using this new data in order to run massive experiments and find out exactly what tactics are most effective and how to better tailor them and how to better spend their money so that they can effectively communicate with the public. Um, So that's one thing that that's being used for. And I'd say that that is currently moving through campaigns and political organizations, that they can better tailor their emails, they can better tailor their door knocks in order to deliver the right uh, persuasive message to whoever they're talking to. Um, the other type of analytics that I talk about a little bit in the book and is actually going to be the subject of a second book that I'm working on this summer um, is analytics for passive democratic feedback. So if you take an organization like MoveOn again, uh, MoveOn has defined their 7 million uh, member email list as all members. And that means that they can send out multiple emails to random segments of that list and see, based on which emails are getting open and which messages are getting clicked on, which issues are most popular. Um, I opened my book with the Wisconsin labor protest from two years ago now. Um, and the Wisconsin labor protest started out as a state policy response to a the governor's budget rescission bill. Uh, few things can sound more boring than that. Um, move on overnight sent out an email to their membership to, uh, to a random segment of their membership to find out is this an issue that's really popular with them 
They found that it was, as did Daily Coast, as, as did these other Netrich groups. And within 48 hours, they had redirected their staff, they had redirected their money, redirected their attention to national mobilization around this issue. Um, that's not the only reason why Wisconsin turned into uh, really the largest labor protests of the past at least 20 or 30 years. But it's a major reason why. Within two weeks, uh, MoveOn had led a coalition that set up solidarity rallies, 50,000 people in all 49 other state capitals. They took that state policy battle and turned it into a national issue. And they were able to do it because they could identify member sentiment through these granular back-end tools that really aren't visible to you and me as we go about our day of opening emails from organizations and quickly deleting them. Um, so I would say that that's the other next frontier is advances in analytics for passive democratic feedback and for organizations identifying based on this public that we have gathered, what is it that they are willing to do and what can we help them help mobilize them to do to really pressure uh, government to do the right thing? So can you say objectively at this point that the transformation that's under that is come to uh, uh, digital advocacy or advocacy in general, um, this digital transformation, mm -hmm. is it, has it made these advocacy groups better? Has it made them more effective? Or is it just that they're adapting to the new way of reaching mm -hmm. people? Um, I would say that it has made them marginally better, marginally more effective. Uh, at the end of the day, what these civil society organizations are trying to do uh, is mobilize, mobilize grassroots power to convince policymakers to make a decision that they wouldn't otherwise make. Uh, this is Robert Dahl's classic definition of power, that power is when actor A convinces actor B to do something that actor B wasn't otherwise going to do. Um, E-petitions alone are really good for the simple stuff of convincing someone who doesn't really care that a public wants you to do something, and so you go ahead and do it because you didn't care. Um, but if instead what you're trying to do is get Congress to pass uh, anti-handgun legislation, Congress isn't likely to do that, and so you need to leverage an awful lot of power. Uh, the internet doesn't radically reshape any of that. It doesn't change the structure of the Senate or the filibuster. So there are still an awful lot of fundamentals out there that dictate how our politics operates. Um, but at the end of the, end of the day, if the internet doesn't revolutionize all of politics, it at least makes the work of trying to change the world marginally easier and more effective than it was before. So I'd say that these new organizations are probably better, and the old organizations using this technology are probably better off than they were in the 1990s or 1980s. Um, but it's not the revolution that some of us had hoped for a, a dozen years ago. Well, David Karp, on that note, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.